1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 27 of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Shasodia. Hi, Raj.
2: Hi, Timothy. Great to see you again.
1: Good to see you. And this week, we have an incredibly timely discussion with someone who's one of the leading experts in the world on the topic we're about to cover. So we're welcome, Zinat Tan from MIT, who, beyond just being uh, an incredibly prolific writer and uh, professor, also runs the not for profit, the Good Jobs Institute. Zinat Tan, welcome.
0: Thank you so much, Timothy and Raj, for having me and for the work that you do at Conscious Capitalism.
1: Thank you. Well, a bunch of topics we can cover today, and I guess a couple of them sort of anchor in your book, um, The Good jobs Strategy, and uh, the series of articles that you've written since then on that topic about what you've learned. So maybe begin by introducing our guests to the whole idea of what is the good job strategy? What are the fundamentals of that?
0: Yeah, so the good job strategy is a combination of investing in people And investment in terms of wages, benefits, uh, stable schedules and opportunities for growth and success. And combining that investment in people with operational choices that leverage that investment by increasing the productivity and contribution of workers. For example, one of those operational choices is empowering people to make Mm -hmm. decisions. Now we and, and empowering people, you know, enables them to um drive sales, drive customer satisfaction and, and improve operations. And as a result, it increases the contribution of people and enables companies to pay their workers more and, and and to invest further in them. So it's a combination of operational choices with investment in people. And one of the things that I stress is that it's a system. It's a mm. system that works together. Um, And one way to highlight the systems view, and in my book, I talk about four operational choices, Mm -hmm. focus and simplify, standardize and empower, cross train and operate with Slack. Um, I just mentioned empowerment as one of those choices. So of course, we all know that empowerment is great, right? I mean, why would anyone not empower their workers, especially in a service environment? Empowerment is great for customers, it's great for employees, for their motivation, but um, I was giving a, you know, I was part of a workshop last year, before, just before COVID, and we were talking about the benefits of empowerment. And one of the executives raised his hand and he said, A couple of years ago, we empowered our workers and lost tens of millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Of course, you can't empower if you haven't hired the right people. You can't empower if you have very high turnover because you don't pay people well enough. You can't empower if your operations is so complicated that people don't know about the products or the services that they offer. And you can't empower if you don't give people enough time. So what I try to emphasize is that good job strategy is a system and empowerment is just one of those, um, one of those operational choices, uh, but the systems view is important.
1: Well, I love that idea you look at the systems. And one of the things that in doing the research for this that I, I actually loved was your colleague, um, went and spent nine weeks working in a not-to-be-named retailer, but her experience of what that was like and her documenting that discussion was eye-opening. Maybe you want to share a little bit, because I think as much as we talk about the systems view, that, that view on the ground, <laughs> here's what it actually looks like, it was, was very eye-opening to me.
0: And it was eye-opening to me too. So Sarah Kellett was my student at MIT Sloan. She took two of my classes. And after as she was graduating, I, I asked her if she would join me to spread the good job strategy. At this point, I was getting requests from executives to implement good job strategy in their organizations. And Sarah kindly joined, and we decided that her first project would be to have this experience in the front line, understanding what work is like and what life is like as a frontline worker. And here was one of the, there were so many things about it. First of all, I think most of us who haven't had these frontline jobs do not appreciate the physical difficulty of working in the front lines. You're on your feet all day long, you're interacting with customers and it's just tiring. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other thing that we noticed was how so many of the back best practices that we think about in academia are just not implemented at all. So Sarah's experience from the moment she applied to the interview process, to the onboarding and training was full of problems, wasting her time, wasting the company's time and really setting setting her up for failure. I mean, she's a very competent person and you put this competent and motivated person in a setting, and she failed. Miserable, mm-hmm. because the system, again, the, the system makes sure that people don't do a good job. Yeah. So, it was, yeah, it was an eye-opening experience
1: for us. Yeah, it was a compelling, compelling story about making the case for <laughs> why? why you don't want this to happen in your business.
0: <laughs> yeah, during my weeks that Sarah worked there, Timothy, she saw her supervisor only a few times. Why? Because her supervisor was constantly firing, fighting fires. He had no time to spend with Sarah, you know, developing her, leading her, giving her feedback. Those things are just not possible when you operate in a high turnover setting and full of operational problems and people are fighting fires.
2: You know, that, that reminds me of uh, Barbara Ehrenreich's book. I'm sure you've read Nickel and Dime, right? Where she did that over a course of a year of four different jobs and it's such a blind spot for the rest of us, right? I mean, there's, you know, there's that popular TV show called Undercover Boss, mm-hmm. which I'm sure you've seen. I've only seen a few episodes, but the ones that I've seen where the CEO disguises himself or herself and then spends time at the front lines of the organization and, and comes away with renewed respect for the, uh, how difficult and even complex the work can be and how dedicated the people are despite their low wages and all the things and how many challenges they're facing uh, in their own lives, right? Because Partly because they're, they're paid so little that they have no financial uh, buffer whatsoever. And at the end of the show, inevitably, he writes big checks. Mm-hmm. You know, Susie here needs, I'm going $25,000 so you can get out of that problem or somebody else gets money to get out of their problem. But they don't do anything systemically, mm-hmm. right? But- they address the people they happen to come across in that experience, but they don't zoom back and address what I think is a fundamental, I call it a caste system now in American business in general, I think, especially in the U.S., uh, where we have these two very distinct lived experiences within the same company. You've got your salaried, college-educated, full-time professionals, and then you've got the hourly, probably not college-educated, many part-time, without benefits, without a growth plan, uh, the rest of the workers, right? And, and their turnover probably would be 10 times higher, right? And the engagement might be a fraction of what it is. And we just live with that and we just accept that, right? And if we start to then look at what is going to make life better, as you point out, it's not just paying more, which is important, it's critical, but also all of the other factors that make it's for a dehumanizing experience.
0: I am 100% with you, Raj. There is such a big disconnect between the headquarters or the management type and the front lines. And that causes lots of problems, but it also prevents the headquarters from re-understanding what the work is like and from understanding what the experience of frontline workers is. So one of the things that we do when we present the companies is um, we do workshops. And during the workshops, we present them their own data. And their own data about, as you mentioned, pay is not the only thing, but pay is such an important thing. And if, you, if you're at the top, you have no idea how important pay is for the front lines. Um, And we present the take-home pay data for for their full-time workers. And we compare it to the living wage. Mm -hmm. And when executives see these data in front of them, there's oftentimes quietness in the room. And we talk about how, you know, with the wages that they receive from you, they're not able to pay their rent, pay for childcare, or just basic expenses. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you can't take care of your basic obligations financially, then you're under tremendous stress. I mean, there's research that shows that when you don't have enough money, it drops your IQ by 13 points mm-hmm. and has all sorts of health and, 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 and stress type of consequences. Of course, when workers have these, they can't show up at work with their full selves. They can't focus. They can't be productive. Uh, They have attendance problems. And of course, this means that they can't, you know, they can't improve and they can't be um, going to the next stage in the company and they find themselves in this vicious cycle. But so many executives don't understand how important that pay is being and being able to take care of your family is for front lines because we live in two different worlds in this country now.
2: Yeah, and there's also data that shows that financial stress directly contributes to all kinds of physical illnesses, right, Uh, from blood pressure to uh, ulcers to uh, many, uh, depression, anxiety. I mean, we already have an epidemic of depression and anxiety and even suicidal ideation in this country, and it's only getting worse. Absolutely. Absolutely. But there are companies like HEB, one of the companies I've written about in the healing organization, where, where the CEO... Who's the, by the way, the grandson of the woman who started this company. And it's really like her energy still flows through this business uh, 80 years later. And he said, please pay our people as much as possible, not as little as possible. So the objective function is not to minimize the cost of labor. The objective function is to maximize what we can pay people and create a business model around that. And by the way, their prices are lower than Walmart's even though they're paying way much, you know, way better wages and also giving them stock and so forth. I mean, it's, it's kind of one of the cases similar to the case studies in your book. Oh,
0: absolutely. So Craig Boyan, who runs HEB now, he's the president of HEB, comes to MIT every year and talks mm-hmm. to my students about what they do. And he said, you know, one way to think about labor is just if the cost to be minimized. but And that's how most retailers run their operations. And he said, we think about people is we try to see people as drivers of profit. And we find that investing in our people is a winning strategy for us. So he makes a very compelling case. And as you say, Raj, their prices are just as low, if not lower, than their competitors. Um, they are amazingly successful financially and when there are issues right now with COVID-19 pandemic or when there are uh, problems in you know hurricanes or problems in, in in texas or you know just two weeks ago um the disasters that we had in texas HEB is able to adapt to those so quickly because they have a motivated and capable workforce and they have great operations so it's one example of the many companies um that can you know invest in their workers drive lower turnover and, and a more motivated and capable workforce and their investors, customers and employees and the community. Everybody is, does better.
1: So I'm, I'm fascinated by, you know, what we've just sort of basically set up. You've just sort of said, hey, listen, here's this company. It's incredibly successful by operating in this model. And you show in your book and in your articles, numerous companies that, that really um, are industry leaders because they operate this way. And yet, <laughs> you know, it's almost like with conscious capitalism, we sort of say, look, look at some of our member companies. They're incredibly successful. They're among the most profitable in their business. And yet we sometimes feel like we're talking a foreign language when we get into these discussions. Which, you know, brings me back to this, like, like what really is the alternative if you're not going to treat your people really well and you're in a customer service business? Um, you know, like, like what, what are we missing in trying to convince more businesses to go down this path?
0: Yeah. I mean, first of all, thank you for leading this movement. I have one of my Raj's favorite books, Everybody Matters, and it's like, It's a combination of investing in people and operations too, because um, Bob Chapman in his work, you know, looks at lean Toyota production system to really drive contribution. But you ask Timothy, why is this so rare? And why, why is it like we find these companies that are doing really well and then not enough of them uh, follow this path? I think a fundamental reason is that this is not the only way to maximize profits. Mm. So it is possible to operate with high turnover, don't treat your customers super well and employees super well and still make money. That is the reality. We see so many companies operating that way and it is possible uh, and it's profitable. Now, competitively, at some point, they end up losing out, but that takes a very long time. So Mm -hmm. one of the reasons is that companies don't have to offer good jobs and invest in their people to be profitable. I think the second reason um, is that there is fear and incentives that get in the way, Fear that especially for public companies, um, maybe activists will come after us if we if we do things that might hurt the shareholders and they perceive it that way. Um, and fears of short term drops in the stock price because so many executives compensation is tied to the stock price, and their ten years are getting shorter and shorter. So I think the incentives are mostly around short-term, focusing on the short-term versus the long-term. And the good job strategy is a long-term game, And there might be times where performance gets worse um, and you have to stick with it. And it's a harder strategy to follow than the bad job strategy. And I think the third reason is what Raj talked about, that cost system. Um, A lot of executives don't have faith or belief in the frontline workers. I think a lot of executives don't believe that ordinary people who didn't go to college, like who that they would be capable and motivated to do the work. And that is a huge problem that we need to address. Um, when I look at leaders like Costco's Jim Sinegal, and he mm. had such belief in workers, right? From the moment he started Costco. He was paying employees double the industry wages, um, and and he thinks that operating with high turnover is not even possible. Like, why would you ever run a business that way? He thinks like us, um, and I think one of the reasons is he started in the front lines. He knows the work. He appreciates the work. He knows the people. Um, one of the companies that's surprisingly moving in this path is Walmart. Um, Walmart in the last six years, and especially in the last few years, has made great progress in investing in people, in fixing their operations. And uh, one of the reasons is a lot of the leaders who run Walmart started in the front lines. Mm. They know the work, they know the people, and they can have faith in the people and make a bet on investing in them.
2: Do you think uh, in leadership development today, that it should be a requirement really that you have to do a rotation and spend a week, you know, in four or five different f- frontline roles, right? So that you understand the work and you understand the lives of people. I mean, it just seems to me that that should be an essential thing. I don't know very many companies that do that though.
0: And I think in our MBA programs, Raj, I mean, you and I, we we, we teach, right? Um, MBA students and, There are so many action learning opportunities that we give to our students and oftentimes they spend time with executives, they spend time with government leaders, they spend time with higher level people. I wish that we made it a requirement that every MBA student who graduates has to spend a certain amount of time in the front lines working. Um, And that way we generate leaders who have empathy for the work and for the workers. And a much better understanding. So um, for the leaders to spend just a day or two in the front lines is not enough. Like we have to grow this. And and I'm a huge also also believer in internal promotion. Uh, You know, one way I can tell if a company is a good job company or not is looking at the frontline managers and see what percentage of them have been promoted from within. So if I see that a company has 70% of managers who are promoted from within, 30% come outside, I'm thinking that company does not invest in the development of their people. Mm-hmm. And they don't have um, that type of a system. So I think that there are numerous things we can do both on the company side and on the MBA education side.
1: So, you know, building off of that, you know, one of the interesting things, I mean, I think there's almost like two tales to talk about. One tale is, you know, we go to the companies who believe that being purpose-driven, thinking about stakeholders, you know, what we would call conscious capitalism companies, um, that there's a great fit between that purpose-driven stakeholder orientation and the, the good job strategy. So, you know, I think that that's one angle where You know, I think we in the Conscious Capitalism movement can look for this kind of integrity around how you do this. Mm -hmm. Then there's another argument, another side of it, which is, listen folks, as the retail industry shifts significantly with the pressure of e-commerce, with the increasing importance of the retail experience being a brand experience now for people, because there's that piggybacks on your ability to get people to buy online, <laughs> and this sort of integrated online channel omni omni-channel experience increasingly puts a lot of pressure on the retail environment to have maybe fewer stores but have better experiences. And and I'm curious if you're starting to see that as being one of those angles where you say, how can we have a great customer experience that's gonna support our e-commerce brand positioning if we don't have a a good job strategy.
0: Yeah, and Timothy, maybe I'll address it in retail and beyond retail because there have been numerous companies that have implemented the good job strategy. Um, Retailers, of course, but also call centers. For example, Hmm. Quest Diagnostics implemented the good job strategy in their call centers. And in both of these environments, the primary driver has been competitive, like you identified. Um, Either it's moral because the leaders believe that this is the right thing to do. How can we ever, like once we see those data, how can we ever have, you know, a significant portion of our workforce making below living wages or being on government assistance? But a huge driver has been competitive on the retailing world. It has been, how do we create this omni-channel experience? To be able to do that, we need a lot better execution. And Mm -hmm. interestingly, you know, the reason I got to these problems was I'm an operations person. I'm not a human resources, um, you know, I'm not in that field. But the reason I got into these problems was because 20 years ago, um, I saw that retailers had terrible execution in their stores. So products were not placed where they were supposed to be placed. Mm -hmm. Their inventory data were inaccurate. Now, in the omnichannel world, these are huge problems. If a product is, if your inventory system says a product is in the store, but it's not there, and you promise a customer that they can buy that product from you, mm-hmm. you won't be able to fill that order. So, these execution problems are huge in retail, and when you look into what drives them, it's employee turnover. It's less of lack of training. It's understaffing and operational complexity. All the things that the good job strategy addresses. So yes, to be able to fix that, to, to thrive in this omni-channel business, you need to have great execution. To have great execution, you need to have great people. And of course, the customer interaction part is extremely important as well.
2: Zainab, it's always interesting to learn about the journeys that people have taken to become conscious leaders or conscious thinkers or professors. Um, you know, a friend of mine at Boston College, Sandra Wadag wrote a book called Intellectual Shamans where she profiled 28 academics. who are kind of doing work that resonates with a higher purpose for themselves and for the world. So I'm interested in your journey, uh, you're from Turkey. Uh, how did you get to be uh, doing the work that you're doing? Did you have any epiphanies or awakenings? Uh, Do you feel like you connected to your purpose at some point? Like what, what shaped you? What caused you of all the operations professors to pick up on this issue?
0: You know, Raj, I think um, first I was huge luck component. I mean, I started s- studying retail operations not because I was passionate about retail or about inventory management, <laughs> Um, But it's because the advisor that I was supposed to work with when I was a doctoral student was focusing on those issues and said, Zeynep, would you like to work in retail? And I said, sure. Uh, So it was (laughs) maybe naiveness on my part just to go with whatever my advisor had, had, had on. But then when I started working on these operational problems, I started talking to people. And when I came to the United States, I always thought about this country as the country where in Turkey we say you turn the corner. You can turn corners in the United States. So if you work hard, if you, if you study well, then you can do well in your life in the United States. That's how I perceived the United States before coming here. And this country has given me that opportunity. Like I, I had a full scholarship, volleyball scholarship at Penn State, and 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 Harvard Business School paid for my education, so I benefited from that. But when I started talking to people, I realized that work was not working for them. I I spoke to so many competent, motivated workers who were just not making it, and it got to my heart. Um, And around these times, I also didn't get promoted at, at Harvard Business School, and I thought, you know what, I'm not going to focus on getting tenure I'm going to focus on making a difference in the lives of people. Um, That was awakening for me. And um, I look back on it now and it was the best decision that I've made. I mean, I feel more fulfilled as a person, as an academic, um, as, you know, I I co-founded with Roger Martin, the nonprofit Good Jobs Institute, And the work that we do makes an impact on the lives of people. And that gives me amazing purpose. And it's one reason why I can say I'm going to work even when I have kids at home um, because of the impact.
1: Yeah. That's beautiful. Um, Maybe switching over to a, a very timely subject right now, which is this whole discussion of minimum wages and should we have them and you know, that and the the whole real, you know, living wage discussion. So they've got these two sort of, they're related, but slightly different uh, discussions going on. And I'm I'm curious with the lens that you look at things through, how do you feel about government policy in this area of minimum wages?
0: Yeah. um, So first I see the government policy of increasing wages as a way to encourage more companies to adopt a good job strategy. Because if companies have to pay their workers more, they have to find ways to increase productivity and contribution of their workers. They won't be able to afford the high turnover um, and and, and all the productivity losses if they have to pay their workers more. So I I see the government policy as a driver um, of of better behavior by firms. Uh, How high the minimum wage should be is a very um, difficult question to answer partly because this country is so big and the cost of living differs tremendously from one city to the next so it is a tricky um it is a tricky balance to 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 have on the one hand create high enough wages that people can have uh can take care of their families and, and 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 it's the living wage but on the other hand that changes from setting to setting so how do you think about the uh, federal policy i mean luckily lots of cities and states have been entrepreneurial in this in in this aspect so the minimum wage in boston is very different than the minimum wage in tulsa oklahoma so um yeah but overall
1: 725
0: is ridiculous Mm. right i mean it's it doesn't provide anyone anywhere um a base for being able to take care of themselves, let alone their families.
1: Yeah, I was struck by one of the statistics that you threw out, I think it was in your book, might have been one of your articles, where you were sort of saying that uh, when you look at the wages of restaurant workers, and you look at the wages of retail workers, that they're basically on average only around $10 an hour or something like that. And that puts them below the poverty line for a family of four. So we're sort of saying, you know, like 60 or 70% of the workers in these industries earning less than $10 can't support a family of four.
0: So in the United States in 2019, 46 and a half million Americans worked in jobs where the median wage was less than $15 an hour. That's 32% of the workforce. Now, $15 an hour seems like a high number, but when you look at the budgets of people mm-hmm. and uh, look at their transportation, childcare, um, food, and, 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 and um, rent, the minimum expenses, $15 is often not enough for, mm-hmm. for, for people. In, in, in sectors like retail, a typical retail worker in 2019 made $12.15. So if they work 40 hours a week every single week, they will Mm -hmm. be making slightly over $25,000 a year. And by the way, most retail workers and frontline service workers don't get to work 40 hours a week every single week. Mm -hmm. So they make even less than that. And they oftentimes don't have their schedules in advance and their hours shift from, and their hours and income shift from, from day to day. So it's a, the wages, schedules, and, and, and financial insecurity is a huge problem that we have to fix. Then government needs to play a role. Um, one other role, if I were, you know, if I had a magic wand. Um, yeah,
1: We've given you the magic well, wand. Go yeah, ahead, if, use if it. I
0: were running the department <laughs> of labor, you know, I would say, hey, companies, disclose your pay data. Let us see what percentage of your workers and not hourly wages, because hourly wages is misleading. A company can pay $23 an hour, but a typical person works only 20 hours a week. So they still don't make enough money. Uh, So disclose your annual take-home pay for the workers and just let us see those data. I think that will go such a long way because one... Most companies don't look at those data. It would encourage companies to look at it. Um, two, investors can now see who pays more, who pays less, and have a sense of who has high turnover, who has low turnover. Uh, customers who want to vote with their values, um, can, can, can see this. And firms love benchmarking. I mean, they always look at other companies' data and they can see themselves, um, vis-a-vis their competitors. So I think, just asking firms to disclose those data uh, can go a long way. Intel does this, and Intel discloses these data by race and gender. So they can see um, if, if, if there is, you know, what they're paying in general, and also if there are any discrepancies between women and men, um, people of color and white people. So more companies should follow Intel's lead.
1: Well, you know, I was going to actually go there about the whole ESG movement, because what you're focusing on is sort of the S part of the ESG movement. And under S, society, people often put people and they sort of say, so what reporting do we want companies to be making? And, you know, right now there's a lot of work going on in a couple of different spaces that says somewhere in the next 12 to 24 months, we're going to get, um, you know, clear definitions of what should be asked for. And so when you put your magic wand on, I'm wondering, when you look at that S part, you say there's this wave coming. Um, How can some of our listeners sort of get involved in supporting that? How do you think that, that, that the people that are listening to this that are already in this space, what can they be pushing for to help move this forward?
0: And the S part, the whole ESG part is one of my colleagues at MIT, Roberto Rigobon, has a recent paper, calls it the aggregate confusion. Because there is not much transparency, everybody looks at different metrics. Um, but on the S part, if you could choose three metrics, um, so one would be the pay data that I, that I mentioned. Yeah. Second would be employee turnover which gives a pretty good indication of whether a company is taking care of its workers or not. And then the third will be what percentage of the frontline managers are promoted from within. Mm -hmm. Because if a company has this high percentage, it means they're careful in who they hire. It means they have great programs to develop people. Uh, It means that they're providing these career ladders for people to move on to better positions. It says so much about the organization. So What percentage of the managers are promoted from within? Annual take on pay and employee turnover would be the three things that I would push if I were an ESG um, investor.
2: Would you uh, see this uh, increasingly as an existential issue? In other words, if we don't address this problem at a system level, this is what's leading to all the populist movements. This is what's leading to the flirtation with socialism and all of the things that are going on in the world, right? where capitalism is seen as the system where people are locked into these low-paying jobs and feel exploited by it. So it's not just the smart thing to do. Isn't it a matter of preserving the system that, that we all care about that gives so many other benefits? If we don't do this, the consequences could be really dire.
0: Yeah, I think, Raj, um, during and after World War II, this was the concern of many business leaders that socialism might take over uh, if we don't create good jobs. And and this fear, partly this fear, encouraged these business leaders to reinvest in their workers and create good, uh, good jobs. And I think we are at a similar point right now. A good chunk of the um, Americans don't believe that capitalism is working for them. Uh, people think that the system is rigged against them. So in this moment... Um and of course we have COVID nineteen, the pandemic, and when we look at the pandemic and who gets most affected by the pandemic, it's it tends to be um people of color or, or lower wage um uh people and the George Floyd protest this summer. So so there, there there is this train coming and I think we have to act, otherwise the consequences could be dire. Um the when, when I talk to uh, companies in the service environments, I say, you know, we have so many divisions in this country now as a result of all these dynamics. And the environments that we have are p- places where people get together. You know, when if you go to a store like a Trader Joe's, for example, where employees feel that they're respected or Costco customers feel they're respected and there's just better vibe in that store people treat each other with more respect and dignity and then you go to a place like um i don't want to name names but high turnover environments there are the racial problems become even worse problems because people don't like each other employees are not treated well so they don't treat the customers well so i think there is that macro point about like capitalism, the fear of capitalism, and then at the personal level, the, the discrepancies, the divisions in our society need to be addressed. And one way to address it is to create these environments where people can thrive and find that they're being treated with respect and dignity. You
2: know, it feels like we, we keep learning and forgetting these lessons, right? I mean, if you go back to the 19th century, why did we have militant unions and then Marxism and socialism and communism, they all arose in response to the perceived abuses of workers by companies, right? mm-hmm. the working conditions at Carnegie Steel and, <clears throat> and all the rest of those stories from, from England and here. And so all of those things that divided our world, that caused extraordinary suffering in the world did not exist before we had that version of capitalism, mm-hmm. right? And then of course we went through wars and we went through I mean, all kinds of suffering to get past that hopefully with the berlin wall and everything else and now we seem to be heading back there right. we are uh, heading i mean
0: one good example is like because you also mentioned unions in in this in, in, and i'm not an expert on on, on the unions part but meatpacking industry is a very good example of this right because they went through a period where it was super dangerous to work in these plants and then workers started protesting. That was a huge unionization effort. But then again, we, had, we, see, we saw more consolidation and, um, and being in states where uh, unionization is a lot, a lot harder. And now we see a lot fewer unions and the working conditions have gotten a lot worse for the meatpackers. And mm-hmm. these are the people who supply our food and we call them essential workers and last year, they made the median wage of a meatpacker was fourteen dollars an hour. So mm-hmm. yes, we see these issues uh, in response to like, I don't even abuses that we see on the on the front level. Um,
1: yeah, no, I think that you raise a really interesting question. I mean, there's there's a bunch of different angles here, and, and another one, yet another angle on this, is this whole idea that we have these changes in technology and these trends around the use of robotics and AI that are going to change our work world over the next 20 years, right? And we all know that train is coming as well. (laughs) And, you know, I like at one point, I think you call it, you know, you're really talking about human-centered systems Mm -hmm. and that's really at the core of the good job strategy is this idea that we're building human-centered systems. So I'm curious, you know, um, as you look out and you see these technology trends, What do you think that's going to mean for the good job strategy? And is it going to accelerate it or is it going to push it away because some of the the really low-end jobs are going to go away?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think it really is up to us to uh, determine how technology is going to affect work and workers. Um, Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, we can use technologies to use people as robots so we've seen examples from fulfillment centers where so many things are automated and workers are you know they just look at their handhelds and it tells them where to go from a to b and human beings are being used as robots in that setting they don't make any decisions they don't inspect for quality they um they're just like henry Ford's factory from 100 years ago um mm. that's one use of technology which is a scary use of technology But then there's another use of technology where you say, okay, now the routine processes are going to be handled by robots. And we're going to use people, their hands, their hearts, and their minds at the same time. Um, One of my favorite examples is um, 10 years ago, I was writing a case about a company in Spain. They are the first company where I saw this good job strategy in action, um, Mercadona. And they were one of the first in retailing to create a fully automated warehouse. And I asked them, why? Why did you go this automation route? And they said, first of all, this warehouse job was hurting our people, their backs. You know, it's it's not physically, it's a very demanding job. And then second, we never want to ask a person to do what a machine can do.
1: Hmm.
0: We want our people to contribute their ideas, their creativity and and, and their solutions, not just use them as a pair of hands. And and I think if we use technology that way, it could bring out the best in us. Um, So it's not a matter of like what technology will do. It's a matter of how we will use it.
1: Well, I also think that that underlying that is, you know, this counterintuitive idea that the companies that are going to make the best use of this are going to be the more human centered businesses, ah. because we go back to the whole idea that you have to have a frame of reference, which says people matter. And if you think people matter and can be a source of competitive advantage, then you're going to go in that direction that you just mentioned. So in essence, what we're saying is that in a world where we think that robotics and AR are playing a more a bigger role, it's the human-centered businesses that are going to take the best use of it and probably be able to build a better competitive advantage around that.
0: So I think there's a great example of this. In early 2000s, when Bob Nardelli became the CEO of um, Home Depot, and he reduced investment in people, he went to more part-timers, and put in so many technologies. They invested something like a billion dollars. And many of the technologies did not work. It's not like a technology comes in and just takes over. You have to find the right technologies. You, you, have, you need to adapt them. You need to scale them. And you need people to involve to workers who are using these technologies to really leverage. And they wasted a billion dollars. Um, after a six-year period, there's a person who came from Walmart to lead Home Depot's technology effort. And at this time, Walmart was not really uh, like at the forefront of technology in retail by any means. And and he said to us in an interview, you know, Home Depot was where Walmart used to be like 20 years ago after a billion dollars of investment. So a great example of you can't just throw money at technology if you don't have that human-centered system. And companies that will leverage this will be the ones that have a motivated and capable workforce who can make the best out of these technologies.
1: Beautiful.
2: Zainab, uh, would you say that business academia is, uh, is getting on board with all these ideas adequately? Are we part of the solution or are we still kind of holding back the change that needs to happen?
0: I think slowly uh, we are moving. MIT Sloan is certainly moving in this direction. We offer several courses. Um, we have a huge sustainability team uh, that has done an amazing job. But one of the problems that I see Raj, in business academia is that we are, like companies, are siloed and we teach marketing, we teach operations, we teach finance. Um, And we don't teach systems. Mm -hmm. And business problems are systems problems. They can't be solved just by an operations approach or by an HR approach or by a finance approach. We need to use the system. And I fear that the more we emphasize rigorous academic research in disciplines, the less we focus on that systems view. And I see that as a threat.
2: That is a huge problem. I mean, I see it. I've seen it for many years. In fact, I took a systems course at MIT with John Sturman. <laughs> MIT is one of the you know, few places yeah. where that, I mean, that that is the home for that. But it's gone so extreme. Like, like in marketing, the annual conference has no plenaries. You, you got to, right away, you go into 16 subspecialties within marketing. So even the marketers are not talking to each other. It's just the advertising people talking to them and the pricing people are talking to each other. So it's, it's a whole different world, artificial world in a way that we've created where we are disconnected now from the real challenges that the world faces.
0: Yeah. And I go to, well, I stopped going to academic conferences to be perfectly honest. Uh, but when I see people presented, presenting their research and I look at the problems that they focus on and the narrowness of the problems, it breaks my heart. Mm. I think super smart, competent, motivated people, they can change the world. Mm-hmm. And here they focus on this little thing because that's how you get tenure. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah. It's like its own version of profit maximization. There's a publication <laughs> maximization going on.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> So, you know, you've really made the case very strongly for why this is a better way of doing business. And I'm just curious, when you look out in the world and you sort of see who's helping to amplify this message. Like, are there consulting firms or investment groups, you know, I don't know, private equity or consulting firms that are trying to amplify this work that you're laying out the case for? Is is anybody taking this up and running with it?
0: Yeah, um so we are, as part, you know, the nonprofit Good Jobs Institute, we are taking this up, um, and Timothy, what I, what I do want to point out first is, you know, when, when the Good Jobs strategy came out, and I made this um, case for why investing in workers along with operational excellence enables companies to do better for their customers, employees, and investors, um, a lot of people believed in the message. A lot of People believed in, the, um, in that this was a better financial case, competitive case, and moral case for companies. But there was one question, um, which was, okay, you're telling us that Costco is better than Sam's Club. But can you show us if Sam's Club can become more like Costco? So even if you believe that the good job strategy is the way to run a company, it doesn't mean that a company who doesn't have this can get there. Mm -hmm. So so after the book came out, I spent the next couple of years trying to figure out, is this possible? And that's why um, we co-founded the nonprofit Good Jobs Institute to say, okay, let's figure this out. So what we have seen in the last Uh, three to five years is it is possible for large companies, for small companies, for public companies and private companies to make the move. So now how do we amplify? Now that we show that that movement is also possible, how do we amplify the message? Uh, and, And there are numerous ways that we can amplify the message. One of them is to educate the investors. Look, this is happening. This is the type of data that you should be asking for and and don't go after companies that are investing in their employees, right? So on the mm-hmm. investor side, we could encourage them to push it more. You mentioned private equity. On the private equity side, you know, private equity could have a longer term horizon with leadership stability because one of the barriers to doing this is also, you know, instability in leadership. The okay. leader comes in, puts them whatever they want to put in. Um, so that could be a playbook for private equity to be able to adapt this. And hopefully in our nonprofit good jobs Institute will provide some of this playbook. Uh, I'm working on my second book right now on how to implement the job strategy. And certainly consultants could take and create practices around this um, if they wanted to. But when you look at the consulting world, oftentimes they don't, they solve a customer's problem and longer term solutions tend to be less of a match with their pricing strategy. <laughs> so if something <laughs> is not going not to take <laughs> three to five years, I'm not sure if they want to pay consultants a million dollars a month uh, in adapting this.
2: Uh, so uh, it it, it
0: may problem, not fit. Huh? <laughs> yes, there's that there is that practical problem on the consulting side. But we could also on the business schools, uh, business school education side, amplify yeah. this as well.
1: So, so what's next for you? What, what's the next stage in your journey? What's exciting you these days in terms of what comes next?
0: Oh, I am, I've am. i been having a blast at our Nonprofit Good Jobs Institute. We actually just uh, offered two positions to one of my former students and to a research associate, a fantastic woman I worked with this summer. So we're expanding the Nonprofit Good Jobs Institute and that's so exciting to me because now we can amplify the message. Now that we have no, sort no. of a playbook, now we can spread it even faster with, um, with people, amazing people who, who are inspired by the impact.
1: Zeynep, that was just incredible. Thank you so much for your time and the way you've really helped us go a lot deeper on this topic. And if people want to know more, about the work that you're doing, where can they get more information about that?
0: The best place to get information is goodjobsinstitute.org. We have uh, videos, we have articles, we have tools that companies can use all for free um, to examine, adapt, good job strategy in their own organizations.
1: Well, again, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time and attention today. And for those of you that are listening, Um, If you've enjoyed today, by the way, on whatever channel you're listening, there's a little subscribe button there. So hit that subscribe button. And if you feel so motivated, go to iTunes and leave us a message and a rating about what you thought. And always feel free to go to theconsciouscapitalist.com where you can leave a message for Raj and I and how we can make this even more relevant and, and helpful to you. And Um, If you want to know about Conscious Capitalism, well, there's a couple places you could go. One is you could, of course, buy our book, The Conscious Capitalism Field Guide, which gives out some details on how to do that. But Raj, where else could they go if they wanted to know more?
2: You can go to consciouscapitalism.org to learn about the movement, uh, find a chapter near you, or if there isn't one, eventually you can start your own chapter. So if you're motivated and inspired by all of these ideas, then please do become part of this movement.
1: And finally, thank you, Carla Viegas, our producer, who every week makes sure this gets out the door. Thank you, Carla. And Zinap once again, thank you so much for your time.
0: Thank you, Raj and Timothy, for having me. It was delightful to spend an hour with you.
1: Thank you
2: for doing the work you're doing in the world. You really are a force for good in the world. Thank you.